First Peter chapter five, the last chapter of First Peter. First Peter chapter five. Beginning in verse one. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't take a position of leadership in the church unless you're prepared to be honest, pure, and loving in your lifestyle. Leadership is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. God holds teachers of his truth doubly responsible because we who lead in a position where we can, because, because we who lead are in a position where we can either draw people towards Christ or drive them away from him. This is illustrated in the life of the famous author Mark Twain. Church leaders were largely responsible to largely to blame for his becoming hostile to the Bible and the Christian faith. As he grew up, he knew elders and deacons who owned slaves, abused him. He heard them using foul language and saw them practice dishonesty during the week after speaking piously in church on Sunday. He listened to ministers use the Bible to justify slavery. Although he saw genuine love for the Lord Jesus in some people, including his mother and his wife, he was so disturbed by the bad teaching and poor example of church leaders that he became bitter towards the things of God. Indeed, it is a privilege to be an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, or a Bible club leader. But it's also an awesome responsibility. Let's make sure we attract people to the Savior rather than turn them away. In these first five verses of chapter 5, Peter is addressing three specific groups in the churches he's writing to. The elders, young believers, and the entire church in general. Since they may be facing the brunt of persecution, he addresses the church elders first. He begins with the words, I exhort the elders. The word exhort means to urge by arguments to a good deed or a course of action. And in Acts 14, the elders are those who were appointed as church leaders. First Timothy chapter three, in First Timothy chapter or First Timothy chapter three tells us that elders are to be mature men of Christian character who are qualified by the Holy Spirit to provide spiritual leadership in the assembly. This would include pastors and those he, he appoints to help him make decisions for the church. So what he's about to do here is give these elders important words of advice to encourage them and move them into action. But before he does, Peter reminds them of the special bond he has with them by citing three traits they have in common. He is a fellow elder. Like some of them, he too is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And number three, together with them, shares in the glory about to be revealed. Having been one of the 12 apostles of Jesus and all the hardships that he's personally been through or he's endured in his own lifetime, those three, these, those three traits reveal these things about Peter. His modesty, 
His modesty by his willingness to identify himself not as an apostle or even a pious pope, but just like those le- the leaders in those churches, a fellow elder. His sincere th- sympathy. His sincere sympathy for them to, for them for enduring hardships, suffering, and persecutions because of Jesus' example. And his optimism of an eternal destiny and prize awaiting those who have, who have had to suffer as leaders in the church. President Dwight Eisenhower said this about leadership. In order to be a leader, a man must have followers. And to have followers, a man must have their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality of a leader is unquestionably integrity. Without it, no real success is possible. No matter whether it's on a section gang, on a football field, in an army, or in an office. And I would add, in the church. If a man, if a man's associates, if a man's associates find himself guilty of phoniness, if they find that he lacks forthright integrity, he will fail. His teachings and actions must square with each other. The first great need, therefore, is integrity and high purpose. If the Lord has put it in your heart to maybe one day pastor a church or just any leadership position, it's important that you have these personal characteristics, modesty, sympathy, and optimism. You see, modesty will keep you from having a big head. It'll keep you from being conceited. It will keep you from thinking that you're better than everybody, that you're holier than thou. Sympathy will help you better to better minister to people because you can put yourself in someone else's shoes. You can put yourself or you can see the perspective of another person and feel their pain or joy when whatever it is they're in whatever it is they're going through and optimism optimism will help you get through the difficult times in ministry if you read the gospels jesus perfectly displayed and exemplified all three of these characteristics modesty sympathy and optimism Having established the traits that he shares with the church leader, Peter turns to the exhortation, to exhortation by informing them of their task in verse 2. First and foremost, he says, elders are to shepherd God's flock. Throughout the Bible, the relationship of leaders and those being led by them was described metaphorically as a shepherd-like relationship. Just as the shepherds cared for their flocks, Israel's leaders were appointed by God to care for his people. This metaphor is all rooted in a description of God as the shepherd of his people. So here, not only is Peter borrowing from this metaphor, but he's also essentially repeating the words Jesus told him in John 21, 16. Shepherd, my sheep. He tells us that the flock belongs to God, but elders have been given the responsibility to serve as under-shepherds of that flock. This means that the role of every church leader is to tend to the people of their specific churches as a group assigned to them by God. Peter then goes on to tell the elders how they're to act, listing three specific sins they are are especially prone to and three ways they ought to conduct themselves. He says, not overseeing, out of compulsion, but willingly. Leaders lead not out of obligation or because someone has to do it, 
because, but because they freely and willingly have chosen to carry out this valuable work. See, those who serve only because they feel they must will eventually lose the joy of serving. And when that begins to happen, the church are the one, or the church is the one to suffer the consequences. Service in the church ought to be done with the proper motive. That is, with personal willingness and a sense of divine calling. As E.G. Selwyn says, there is all the difference, there is all the difference, especially in spiritual matters, between the man who does his work for no other reason than he has to do it, and the man who does it willingly as being in God's service. Peter then adds, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Greed for money is an unworthy motivation for leading in God's house. See, when someone with an intense desire to have or make money is placed in a leadership position, they may see the church as a way to do that, as a means to that end. It's not uncommon to hear stories about church leaders taking money from the people they lead or embezzling funds in some fashion. Paul stressed this in his qualification for an elder in Titus 1.7 and in 1 Timothy 3.3. 1 Timothy 3.3. And throughout the New Testament, false teachers are often indicted because of their love for money. Genuine leaders, on the other hand, have an eagerness in doing the work. The word eagerly here is another word of saying willingly. See, leaders serve not because they have to, as if, as if it were just another job. They serve because it's in their heart. They want to serve. This is also one of the big factors I look for. When it comes to greed, when it comes to money, when it comes to choosing leaders in the church here at Fresh Vision Church, this is why I typically follow that six-month general rule. And what that means is, is allowing someone to serve here for six months just, to, just so I can observe or you know, other leaders can observe where their heart is when it comes to money, when it comes to being responsible with their finances, seeing, you know, I, seeing if that's all they talk about or if they're you know, driving around or walking around with fancy clothes and talking about it all the time or... I don't know. I it's just you know you want to I want to make sure that this church has the right leaders and that they're not serving under the wrong um, for the wrong motives. You see, as a lead pastor here, I have a responsibility to you all and to this church that God that God has called me to steward to make sure again that no one, no one at all is taking advantage of us that no one is taking advantage of the church. Finally, in verse 3, Peter says, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Paul here is urging leaders to lead by example and not use their positions of authority as an opportunity to oppress those under them. See, the church needs elders, wise elders, not dictators. Peter might have had the mind in mind the words of Jesus in Mark 10:42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Here's a good quote from John Ruskin. I believe that the first test of a truly great man is humility. I do not mean by I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power, but really great people have a curious feeling that the greatness is not in them, but through them. And they see something divine in others and are endlessly, endlessly, foolishly, incredibly merciful. Power. 
power no more today than in the first century is addictive and destructive. When leaders act and behave as if the flock is theirs, it leads towards unworthy motives and pollutes decisions that are to be made under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The role of the elder isn't to boss others around or increase their own reputation. Their role is to exemplify the character of Christ to those under their charge. I believe many of the abuses we see in churches today would be eliminated by simply obeying the three instructions in verses 2 and 3. The first would be, the first would abolish all reluctance. The second would spell the end of commercialism. And the third would be the death of officialism in the church. As this church grows and more men are chosen to help lead my prayers, and this should be your prayers as well. My prayers are that that they'd have a heart of submission and humbleness yet stern when it's needed to be able to tell a brother or a sister, hey, we see this behavior, we see this going on, and we need to talk, it's unacceptable, whatever it is. I can have frank but also tactful conversations in love, always in love, not out of anger or out of hatred or out of spite, but always in love. But not only that, but are also willing to hold me accountable if I ever start showing of having wrong motives. Thus, again, as I mentioned, having strong spiritual leaders in the church is ultimately a benefit to you all because um, not only will they help me lead you more effectively, but also they'll have this church's best interests in mind and keep the wolves from trying to creep in. Now, before going to his final remarks, Peter, in verse 5, addresses the younger men and women in the church, and everyone in general. He says, those who are younger, and this this could mean whether in years or in the faith, should be subject, and that's another word for, another word for that is submit, to the elders. Now, why should they submit. Why is it important for these younger men and women to submit? Well, the reason why is because these overseers have wisdom that comes from years of experience in the things of God. They have a deep experiential knowledge of the Word of God. And they're the ones whom God has tasked to take care of his sheep. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. He then tells the entire church, both leaders and the young men and women, everyone there, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So whether you're a leader or not, whether you're young or old, as Christians, we're to develop a deferential and humble attitude toward one another. When we recognize that we're flawed, even as Christians, that we're still flawed and we still sin, we're less likely to be offended by others. We're less likely to, you know, when we see our own faults and we recognize that we're not perfect, we can see the flaw in others and being like, oh man, yeah, it's okay, man, I understand. I know the struggle. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever it is that you're struggling with, again, it's understanding, having that, that, that heart, that humble attitude. Humility, see, is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. 
Whereas pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. Peter grounds these words by citing Proverbs 3.34, which is also quoted in James 4.6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These words alone, this, this verse alone should be reason enough to keep us humble, to keep you humble. It ought to overwhelm you to know that God opposes our pride and is determined to break it. Yet, listen to this, he is powerful or powerless to resist a broken and contrite heart. God said this in Isaiah 66 too. My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Oh, man, what great. You know, the, the idea of that, that he's powerful enough to break us but powerless when our heart is broken, when we come to him with a broken heart. When we come to him crying our eyes out sincerely and saying, Lord, I need you. Forgive me. I've messed up. You can do that. You don't have, I mean, any time. You don't ever have to think, you know what, I've blown it and he'll never accept me. You know, I've messed up too much and man, it's gonna take it's gonna it's gonna whoop me. No, God isn't like that. You can just come to him with and he'll just love you and embrace you and tell you, I'm here to comfort you, I love you, I will never leave you. And again the idea of that ought to crush your heart. What a wonderful and amazing, beautiful God we have. Well, in the following verses, as we continue on, the following verses we're about to read, Peter closes out this letter with some final remarks. So let's pick up in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. F.B. Meyer wrote this in his book, John the Baptist. I heard about a pastor who was voted the most humble pastor in America. And the congregation gave him a medal that said, the most humble pastor in America. Then they took it away. They took it away from him on Sunday because he wore it that day. 
Meyer concluded, the only hope of decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Peter begins this final section by going from humility before others to humility before God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The word therefore connects this statement with the quotation in verse 5. God opposes the proud. It is true wisdom to humble oneself, oneself before him. Among the other things, among other things, this will, will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns on him. Yes, this may mean trials and difficulties in this life. Trusting him, obeying him, putting all your concerns on him, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to may cause problems. It may, have, it may cause issues in your life. But it's always in your best interest to humble yourselves before God. Why? So that he may exalt you at the proper time. By submitting to and waiting out God's uh, deliverance, you can expect his mighty hand to lift you up and exalt you in a way that seems best to him, whether it's in this life or in the next when you're with him in his kingdom. So, how can one do this in his life, in this life, when things get really hard? It's easy to say, but when you're experiencing, when you're experiencing it, how do you place that trust? That, how, do you, how can you do that? By casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You see, worrying about things, worrying about this life, worrying about things you have no control over is futile and does nothing but make us want to solve our own problems. It makes us want to go out and figure it out ourselves. That's what worrying does. It's, it's a sin because you're not trusting in God. You're just focusing on that worry. A preacher once said, worry is sin because it denies the wisdom of God. It says that he doesn't know what he's doing. It denies the love of God. It says he does not care. And it denies the power of God. It says that he isn't able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. But when we have a heart of humility... We're trusting that God is able to do a lot better than we can and has our best interest in mind. When you cast your cares on God, it'll free you from being concerned about your own needs and it'll enable you to be concerned for the needs of others. Then in verses 8 and 9, Peter adds an exhortation to be aware of Satan's schemes. When you've been in combat or work in a profession like mine, you quickly learn the importance of staying vigilant to your surroundings. You learn early to stay alert and stay alive. You can't pit, I mean, you, you can't doze off. You can't you know, take your eye off the ball for a minute because things can happen just like that. And the last thing you want to happen is for you at the, to end up at the hospital or, or for your family to have to plan a funeral. You need, you learn early. And you know what? It, honestly, in my case, it's, it almost is a deficit, and this is something that um, I've been praying to God a lot about, that I'm almost hypervigilant. 
I think it has to do with a lot of stuff that I personally experienced, but when I'm in a small road and there's construction going on, I'm, it freaks me out because I have no out, have no way of getting around or I have no way of getting out of there. You know, and I get stuck, and I, the idea of getting stuck worries me a lot. And so that's just some of the things that, that go through my mind, but when I'm at a restaurant or when I'm at a public location, I'm always looking for ex- exits. I'm always looking for a way to get out if something serious happens, if something serious were to happen. I've had a conversation with my kids about what they ought to do, what they should do if a serious incident was to happen in one of their schools or at a party, you know, to, again, first and foremost, to stay calm. Because I know when you begin to freak out, you, you, don't, you don't think clearly. But, again, I, these are things that I think normal people that haven't gone through or aren't law enforcement or haven't gone through... Uh, combat, maybe they don't have these conversations, but I don't know, again, these are the things that go through my mind. Being alert and staying vigilant. Well, Peter, basically Peter is telling his readers to not let their guards down with two sharp commands. Be sober-minded, be alert. This means to be serious-minded, to take a a realistic approach to life, to be smart about the choices you make. Why is this so important? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The Bible shows us how the devil uses different disguises to trick us. Sometimes he comes like a snake to lure people into moral corruption. Sometimes he disguises himself as an angel of light, attempting to deceive people in, spirit, in the spiritual realm. Here, as a roaring lion, he's bent on terrorizing God's people through intimidation tactics, such as insults or verbal death threats. So he's on the lookout The devil is on the lookout to see who will succumb in fear to his roars and deny Jesus. And those who do, those are the ones that he devours. Peter then tells believers that what we ought to do when the lion is roaring right in our faces, when he's trying to intimidate us and and cause us to fear, and to be scared, to cower, to deny Jesus, he tells us, resist him, firm in the faith. Instead of succumbing to the intimidation tactics of the devil, we're to resist him through prayer, God's word, and standing firm in the faith. See, this is how Jesus was able to resist the devil after 40 days in the desert after not eating for 40 days, after being out there by himself for 40, for 40 days, there comes a the devil and tries to throw all these things at him. And you guys know. You guys know how he responded. He just used the word of God. He stood his ground. He stood firm. He stood his ground. You see, just because his roar is loud doesn't mean that you'll be devoured. Doesn't mean that you have to, that he's going to devour you. As long as you continue to trust God, believe that he truly cares for you and will sustain you until the end, you can stand against Satan in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Now in the last part of verse 9, he adds the motivation for standing firm in the faith and resisting the the devil. The same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. He's encouraging his readers, he's encouraging you, he's encouraging me here by informing us 
that their difficult circumstances, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever hardship, if you're being insulted, if you're being made fun of, if you're being mocked, if you're getting bullied, if you're in risk of losing your job, if everyone is coming against you at school, at home, at work, you're not alone. Others, it's not unusual, others are experiencing it. Never get the idea that you're the only one going through these battles. There are believers all over the world experience similar sufferings. And there are some who are experiencing even worse, who are getting their heads chopped off, who are getting burnt alive, all for the name of Christ. But again, there are people out there. There could be people here in this church that are going through similar trials, trials as you, or have gone, already gone through that, that, uh, that trial. As we're going through the fire of affliction, one of Satan's tactics is to discourage us with thoughts. With the, he puts thoughts in our head, our head, telling us that we have it bad, that no one else has it as bad as us. But you see, that couldn't be further from the truth. Someone somewhere is going through or has gone through the pain you're going through. If you've been abused or have been abused, Christians have gone through that. A lot of Christians have gone through that. They know what it's like. If you're suffering through some kind of medical malady or some kind of something is going on medically, There's a lot of Christians who have been through that as well. If you have family that's suffering, there are people, Christians here, Christians all around, that can help you and guide you, give you the strength, pray for you, understand what you're going through. This also applies to losing job, losing jobs, losing friends, just losing things in general. They know. There's a lot of Christians out there who know what that's like. And they're there for you. That's the thing is they're truly, if they truly have a humble heart, they're there for you to talk to you. They're never going to say, man, you got to figure that out. It's your problem. You deal with it. I got my own. They won't do that. I know certainly I wouldn't. I hope any of the, you know, leaders here or, you know, would never do that. We're here to help. We're here to, to minister to you. Don't forget that. You're not alone. But again, those thoughts, he tricks us, the devil tricks us by putting thoughts and idea that no one else has it as bad as us. But again, that couldn't be further from the truth. This is why fellowship is so important in the life of a Christian. This is why coming to church, even when you don't feel like it, is so important. So many Christians going to churches, big, huge churches, but there's no fellowship. They walk in, and they walk out, and there's no true fellowship. They're still carrying around all that burden, all those problems. And I hope that us as a church we'll always be able to minister to one another, no matter how big we get, or no matter how small we are. Here, we're here to bear one, uh, one another's burdens, as well as pray for and encourage one another during good times and bad. See our personal victories will help others just as theirs will help us. So as I said, if you're going through something really hard, talk to one of us and allow us, please allow us to minister to you. That's what we're here for. That's what God has called us to you to do, to serve you, to minister to you. Or if you're not really comfortable with doing that right now, don't feel shy about filling, filling out one of those pink cards that we have. Tell us. You can fill that out anonymously. Just tell us, hey, you know what? I need prayer because... Man, I just dug my toe the other day. You know, whatever it is, whatever, no matter how minor it is, 
you know. Let us know. We're here to care for you, or we're here to, because we care for you and we want to minister to you. All right. I know I'm kind of going low over here. I'll finish this up real quick. In verses 10 through 11, Peter closed on a positive note by reminding us that God knows what he's doing and is in complete control. Here he gives us several reasons to have hope. No matter how difficult the fiery trial may become, a Christian should remember, first of all, that he is that he's in the grace, I mean, that God is the God of all grace. This lovely title of our God reminds us that his dealings with us are not based on what we deserve, but on his thoughts of love to us. So no matter how hot the fire of our testing gets, we can always be thankful It'll never be as hot as the unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire of hell that we once deserved or that we do sometimes deserve. Another strong reason to have hope is that he called you into his eternal glory in Christ. This enables us to look beyond the sufferings in this life to a time when he shall when we shall be with the savior and be like him forever but this hope is not just something that permits us to cope with suffering it's in the fact the it's it's in the fact and the inheritance that we are destined to have he made you his child so you could be with him and praise him for all eternity. A third reason to be hopeful is that our suffering, this suffering, whatever you're going through, is just for a little while. Peter already told us in chapter 1, verse 6, that our various trials are only for a season, but the glory that results is eternal. Paul had this same thought in mind when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Listen, when you and I get to heaven, the sufferings of this life will seem like seconds when compared to the eternal glory that endures forever. A final reason to be hopeful is that God is using our trials to teach us and mold our character. He is training us for reigning. He lists four different aspects of this training. God of all, the God of all grace uses trials to restore us or make us fully prepared and complete with respect to any resource or ability which, they, which we have lost or you have lost through suffering. He will establish you firmly in any position, rightful privilege, or responsibility which the suffering has taken from you. He uses hardships to strengthen us from any weakness that caused us to suffer and any inadequacies that keep us from overcoming evil. And he will support you in any rightful place from which the suffering has wrongfully removed you. To put simply, all loss will soon be made right and it will be for all eternity. Now, when an unbeliever goes through suffering, they lose hope. But for the believer, suffering only increases hope. Not only that, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. God builds character. 
and brightens hope when a believer trusts in him and depends on his grace. The result is that God receives the glory forever and ever. Now, in view of this marvelous way in which God overrules persecution and suffering for his glory and our good, it makes sense why Peter would burst into this doxology. To him be dominion forever. Amen. In the New King James Version, verse 11 reads like this. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Only to such a, a one is glory due. Only in the hands of such a one is dominion safe. In verses 12 through 14, Peter closes out this letter with a summary, some greetings, and a final benediction. The closing begins with the reference to Silvanus, who may have helped Peter write this letter. Also, many scholars believe Silvanus is probably the one, the same one known as Silas in many of Paul's letters. Now, Peter's call to stand firm in God's grace summarizes the message of this entire letter. In spite of the suffering, he encourages his believers to stand firm in the grace, uh, the grace of God or in the grace God has given and resist falling away, resist being an apostate. Peter then conveyed uh, greetings to his readers from the church in Rome with the words, she who is in Babylon, and also from Mark, my son. He finally closes this letter with a charge and, his, and a benediction. The charge is, greet one another with a holy kiss, with a kiss of love. The kiss of love was, customary, was a customary form of greeting in the first century. And today, in some cultures, this is still practiced. But here in America, it's usually handshake. I prefer a handshake and a bro hug. You know, I mean, that's just me. I mean, if you give me a kiss, I'll be like, what's going on? You know, you know people I kiss or kiss me are my kids, you know, and, or my wife. But, uh, yeah, bro hug's good. So just to let you know, you know, if you want to love me, just give me a bro hug. I'm good with that. Um, the benediction is this. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Peace is a tranquil word to use with storm-tossed saints who are enduring affliction in the name of Christ. It's in these times, in these afflictions, in these, in these storms that Jesus whispers peace to his blood-bought blood -bought flock as they suffer for him in the midst of a turbulent society. This benediction here is appropriate, is an appropriate ending to this letter. Because when Christians are being persecuted on earth, heaven's peace can never, ever be taken from them. Someone once said, peace and safety consist not in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. Peter has given us in this precious letter encouragement. He, he encourages us to hope in the Lord no matter how hard or trying times may be. Throughout the centuries, the church has experienced all sorts of fiery trials. And in every single one of those times, Satan has never been able to destroy it. If you look at our society, society today, if you pay attention to what's going on in the news and what some politicians are saying and the direction this country is going in, the church is facing and will continue to face fiery trials. So we must be prepared. But whatever may come, Peter is saying to each of us, stand firm in hope. Stand firm. You're not alone. Because the glory is soon to come. 
Let's close prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what what you're doing here, what you have done here, Lord. It's a blessing, Lord. I I personally just see it as confirmation of what you're doing, what you're going to do, Lord. I pray that as long as I continue in this position, that I'll be able to minister to everyone here, Lord. That I'll never... Lord, help me, keep me from having a prideful heart. Lord, I don't want the devil to ever creep into my mind and tell me that I'm better than anybody else, Lord, because in all reality, I know how much of a sinner I am. Lord, so I ask that you help me, help the leaders here, Lord, to lead your people. Protect them. To watch over, to be good stewards of this church. Lord, if anyone is suffering here, Lord, in any kind of way, I pray that these words will encourage them. They remember that the suffering is in for a short while compared to the eternal glory that awaits. That again, the suffering they're going through is to teach them something, it's to, to strengthen them, to restore them. If they remain faithful, they'll come out stronger. Or thank you again for teaching us for allowing us to go through this first letter of Peter. Lord, bless us next time we have. Protect everyone as the week comes up. and May we be salts and lights wherever we're at, Lord. I glorify you. Thank you. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.